Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you, people, I took a little hiatus, some personal stuff going on that's good stuff. I just had to acclimate and get back into Cooper Talk. And I gotta tell you, though, this past weekend, I went down to see some of my uh, buddies, my college friends, uh, down in uh, Ventnor, New Jersey. And I ran into one guy who I have not seen since, I'm guessing, 1990. I actually drove him down. And as everyone went to the beach, and I'm not a huge beach fan, I mean, I just, I don't like it. It's, I, I can last up for like an hour. Me and him went to this little dive bar in Margate called uh, called uh, Maynard's, and we had a few beers, and we just talked, and we laughed our asses off. And so, you know, if you sit there, do me a favor after you listen to this. Go on your Facebook or go through your phone. Find somebody you went to high school or college with and haven't talked to in a while and look them up and go hang out with them because you only live once, and it's it's a great thing when you catch up with people. So anyway, my guest today I actually found on Facebook. It was one of those... Do you know this guy? And I didn't, but I'm a fan of his work. And it turns out, besides being a great actor, he's written like five novels. He's a musician, a singer-songwriter. And I listened to his song, Guinevere, which I'm going to ask him. I think somewhere in his past, he has to have a little bit of a Cat Stevens as his uh, influence. I may be wrong, but it's got that sort of sound. It was really nice. And my guest is Michael McGlone. How you doing, Michael? I'm well, Steve. Thanks so much. Now, is has Cat Stevens been a been an influence you? Or who are some of your musical influences? Because you know you're a singer songwriter, and I always say the singer songwriter really never gets the uh, the credit they deserve. You know, like especially yeah. nowadays. And you're very good at it, and you've released I think four or five albums. I'm not sure, but who's your, uh, there who's your are influence? Three full length albums presently, an EP and numerous singles, and there's more to come. I would say first, broadly, anything that I ever felt was good musically has influenced me and inspired me in some way. I would say more specifically that Cat Stevens is definitely a part of my more uh, specific inspirations. When I was growing up and I first discovered him in my teens, I believe it was, I was enamored with his words, the sound of his voice, his compositions, and they have stayed with me for the, the duration of my musical career, whether it's in the forefront of my thoughts or back in the subconscious, all of the influences like Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, Elvis Presley, Gordon Lightfoot, they all exist and, and they all conspire in some way to improve my songwriting and my musical experience. Now, you do, you're a man of all trades. Now, as a kid and as a teen, what did you want to do? What was your path from getting into all these fields? Did you? What age did you want to become an actor? Well, I'll tell you, I, I was born to do everything that I'm doing. I'm convinced of that because as... I grew up, it was so readily clear to me that doing all these things brought me such joy. And I very naturally had the thought that I would pursue all of these things. In high school, it became more forefrontally conscious for me. And in my senior year, the decision was to either go into college and study literature or go into college and uh, be in a theater program. And I chose to be in a theater program. And that was, I would say, probably the more conscious step 
toward the professional uh, inculcation that later became the case. Though I do believe that it was my destiny, and it was just a matter of these things being revealed to me as they as they were. And I spent one year in college, found that that environment and that modality wasn't for me. I moved on uh, the summer following my first year. And then about, I'd say, nine to 12 months later, had the good fortune to get my first film, which was The Brothers McMullen, which Eddie Burns wrote and directed and starred in with me as one of the brothers. And that was a great success for us. Now, that movie, and it's funny because we, you know, these days everyone talks about independent movies, but to me, that was mm -hmm. that was part of the, when independent movies were pretty much independent, you know, where it's like where mm -hmm. it was the budget was the budget, and it was just like in the vein of clerks and stuff like that. True, the, once they got popular, the, the people will argue that the, you know, the studios spent advertising dollars, but when you guys got together to make them, they were low budget. How did you come about to get that part? And did you think that it would become this little darling and, and launch your career? Well, I'll tell you, I got it consistent with its nature being a, a guerrilla film that came from grassroots through backstage. There was an ad in that very notable actor's trade paper in New York one Wednesday, and I believe it came out on Wednesdays, and I think I picked it up on the first day that it was available and looked in and found this film then called The McMullen Brothers. He later changed it and put brothers in front of the McMullen because that was a little more mellifluous. Though then it was called The McMullen Brothers. I put in a headshot and I remember actually not hearing back for a number of weeks. And that project had stayed with me because it seemed so right for me. And I had this question, how, how, how would a, just a name, Michael McGlone, do I not get a phone call? And it turns out that, that they were just in need of doing some other things first and they were going to call and they did call. I came in for an audition with Eddie. It went very well. I was the first person to audition for that film also, so you know. Eddie later told that story in a very complimentary way. I came in and he said that I gave my audition and then I left and he thought based on what I did that, oh, this is going to be so easy. People just come in and nail it. And later he said that it wasn't quite the same with everyone else and that there was something special that happened that day. And indeed, I only returned the compliment as abundantly. Eddie wrote a project that was almost custom made for me. It certainly was custom made for him. And I'm very grateful for his talent, his gifts, and our chemistry on screen, which is a big part of what a lot of people have told me they love about those movies, how easily they believe we're brothers and how the banter back and forth is so enjoyable to see. And that's what I grew up with, with my own brothers, you know, and that's why when I looked at the script, I was so ready to go in and and do it accurately because it was written so well, so appropriately to my history. 
it's so funny when you say, you know, that's how you grew up. And I, you know, I grew up in uh, New Jersey near Philadelphia. And even when I saw my friends this weekend, there is a certain banner. I don't know if it's because we're older. You know, I don't know if the new kids have that kind of banner now because they're always on the computers. But, you know, you sat mm-hmm. there and you would just bust each other's chops and you had to learn to be mm-hmm. strong. And you were never mean. I mean, you'll, you know, it's like if, if you knew a guy was going bald and it was really sensitive, you wouldn't pick on him. I have a lazy eye. I make fun of it now. But back then, no, I'd make fun mm-hmm. of it because it would hurt my feelings. And I think when you do have that banner, I think when you step in front of a script like you did and you're with someone who you get along with, it probably just did flow very naturally. Oh, definitely. And, and Eddie's gift, his, his gift for writing is so immense. He, he crafted it so well because actually having that experience and that banter with friends and then being able to put it in a movie that's going to be compelling for people for 90 minutes is a, a completely different thing and you have to have a great gift in order to do that and he has it he's a wonderful writer now when you did that movie because it was a small mm-hmm. release when did you start feeling some juice did you get a role right away because you were on a roll or something heard you or did the industry see that movie and say this is a guy we got to get out and get him in a it movie it was at Sundance Film Festival that we that I started feeling the intensity of intention and I I, I can't speak specifically for the others but I will say that it seemed to follow the same path for them but I think Eddie was in touch with people about the destiny of the film and his career before it went to Sundance because there were some conversations that were set up before it even showed there. For me, it wasn't until I was at Sundance and agents and other entertainment executives were seeing the film and then started to uh, pursue me. And I got my first probably most substantial agency contract from that and then from there forward you know my career began to blossom in ways that before that it it, it hadn't uh, abundantly yet and so it was a it was a launching pad that that was a sundance film festival was a launching pad for all of us and the film itself now how do you how do you keep your head grounded you're a 22 year old it's basically your first movie I guess your 22 or 23 movie comes out. Everyone's... I don't know that I did, man. I, I'll tell you, forgive my interruption, but I I just wanted to let you know most immediately that I, I believe I thought I was ready for the level of success that occurred uh, more than I was. I, I believed in ego that... I was ready for everything that was happening, everything that would happen, etc. But I find that, in retrospect, I don't know that's entirely true. I, I comported myself in certain situations quite well, and in others, I was, in many ways, reacting to a, a, a confusion. I don't really believe in confusion, but I was compelled to the illusion of confusion in that time, feeling that I was at a loss for what to do. I didn't know what to do inside emotionally with all of the things that were happening to me. And in abusive drinking and some other, you know, personal expressions that weren't necessarily positive. And only years later did I realize that that was a function of this growth that needed to happen for me that could 
only happen in that trial by fire process. I could only go through it the way that I went through it. There was no other way for me to do it. And I'm blessed that I was able to come out the other side and get sober and then years later stop smoking, find other things that would uplift me and give me uh, the feeling of greatness that uh, I believe we all are entitled to. And I look back and I had just such fabulous memories of the darkness and the light that happened then because they both are in service of the abundance of truth that's in my life now. Well, I would think, I would think it would be tough, as you said, you know, the darkness and the, and the lightness because it is a certain thing. You know, you, you really became, you got that movie and, and you, it was a hit and so people knew you. And then you come back and you do She's the One and it's a much bigger budget and you have John Mahoney, who was one of the best actors out there, and Jennifer Addison, you have, mm. you have stars. Mm. So that must be weird, too, because you're still, I mean, you, you're coming very fast. You know, I talk to a lot of actors, and some, you know, they go, I oh, man, I was auditioning for years, for years, for years. You open the backstage, <laughs> like two years later, right. you're with yeah, an amazing a, yeah. people. It's almost a completely diametrically opposed experience. One, you're in total obscurity looking in the paper for ads, and the next... You're, get, you're fielding phone calls from celebrities that you grew up watching, or you're having meetings with them, et cetera. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extreme difference of experience. Now, what was it like when you did She's the One, because it was a bigger budget, and you guys all were known, and you know, I'm sure on the Brothers McMullen, the crafty wasn't as good as it was on She's the One, but I mean, what, mm. what was it? Well, I have to say, with respect to Eddie's mother, that <laughs> it, it's possible that the, the craft was even better on certain days, because <laughs> she was supplying it. So in honor of her giving us that food, that home-cooked food when we were in the house, I will say that there were days where that was actually superior. You know, it was it was really a charming experience in a lot of ways, and the fact that it was so homegrown is one of the reasons. Now, when she's the one, though, you're playing a character, you know, you're an Irish guy, you know, you're playing sort of a brother or whatever, you know, again. What what roles, mm -hmm. what roles did you want? I mean, of course you're going to take that role because I'm sure you wanted to work with Ed again, and it had a, such a good cast, and it's got a budget, and you know there's going to be viewers. And what and he wrote it for me too. Okay, he he wrote the he wrote the role with me in mind. So there were there were all kinds of happy uh, facts about that movie for me. But as an actor, like at that point in your career, what kind of roles did you really want to do? Did you have an idea? Did you want to you know branch into? You know, man, I I will tell you that for me the the script is always the most important thing. If the writing is there then obviously granted there are roles that are are better than others for a given individual there's the personal taste or their artistic temperament though the script is the thing always first for me and at that time it was as true as it is now so the script for she's the one was there and the script on other projects was there the script even wasn't there on, on some other ones, but because I wanted to work or I, I wanted a paycheck, I would take it seriously. So I wasn't, I wasn't under the influence of any thought process about, you know, let's do this character, let's do that character at that time. And I found that what came was the, the right 
thing. And when things weren't coming, that was also the right thing because it afforded me time for other pursuits and also to look at, well, why aren't things happening? To do to change that if that's the right path. So everything was in, in, in total alignment always, despite the fact that sometimes it didn't seem to be. Now, at what point in, in this time did you start playing guitar or were you playing that when you're younger? I mean, you know, to, to look and see you have these, these albums, which, you know, it just, it doesn't just start you're playing. I mean, I know people who are musicians for a long time, but when did you start picking up a guitar? I, well, I was given a guitar as a gift when I was, I think, 12 or 13 years old. And as with, I think, many young people, they ask for a gift avidly and then they don't really use it. I think I used it the first day I got it and I, I put it away and, and didn't touch it for weeks or some, some facsimile thereof. Though later, when I started uh, performing with bands, I found that I wanted to also create songs of my own. My singing happened in many ways before my songwriting. I started singing when I was about seven years old. I listened to Elvis Presley. My father put an LP of Elvis Presley on, and I was so enamored with how he sounded, how he looked, that I started singing his songs, and then I realized I can sing. So I, I continued to do that. And then later, as I say, as a function of wanting to write songs and put my poetry, which I was already writing, into music, I taught myself how to play guitar with the help of friends who were in bands. They would show me chords and then I would just drill the chords or continue to write a song with the chords until it felt right and, and sounded right. So I started writing songs more seriously in my teens and then started making records after the acting It was in 1998 that I recorded my first record, but I'd been writing songs for many years up to that. You know, to your point that you know these things don't just come out of the blue. Now, with your acting, I know I liked the movie One Tough Cop, and you guys it was it was a great Thanks, man. It was appreciate a, it. It was a great cast. I mean, it, you look at it, it's a you know, I mean, anytime Gina Gershon's in something, it's a good movie too. I, I don't say that just because I'm in it. That's a solid movie. So, like, what is it like for you when you go in and you do a movie like that, and it doesn't get the critical acclaim, but it's a good movie? As you said people aren't going to turn it; they're going to watch it. How does that make you feel as an actor? Like when you go, when you well, let's say when you go into One Tough Cop, you know, did, did you have certain expectations for it, or do you think you went and you did what you had to do, and it's just out of your hands then? Well, I'll tell you, man. Sometimes it's it's difficult not to have expectations with a cast like that and also with some other facts about its trajectory that came to us all. The distribution was through a really heavy uh, financier, uh, someone who had you know numerous successes in the financial sector, and this was this was his pioneer film to distribute. So you had all these things that were conspiring to tell you that there's going to be some, you know, explosion, and there isn't. So you know you you adjust to that. You realize that well, that's just the way it goes. Beyond you know your capability to perceive why you don't know why these things happen sometimes, and you have to let that go and move forward. 
But there is not a way sometimes to manage expectations because they're so, they can be so effortless. It's you look at something and you think, oh, this is this is going to you know. It's different for me now though, and I'm not sure that the same things. Uh, happen for me psychologically and emotionally with films because there's been so much experience with certain things that you you don't know what can happen with them and they end up exploding and then others that you would seem to think are going to explode so abundantly and they don't you can't really uh, invest your thoughts and, and your feelings the only thing that you can be in control of is how hard you're going to work and how you're going to persist. And so a good example is my television series, Kenny the Gun. This is, uh, this is a show that I created, I star in, and we are currently in the process of selling. And with no arrogance or egotistical basis do I tell you that you will see this on your television screen because my commitment to it is such that I am going to see that through. And that's one where it's not an expectation, it's a commitment. And it's also me as a creator of a television show rather than someone who is in a cast or in a show that someone else has the control, more of the control over its destiny. Now tell me about the show. How did you come up with the idea and when did you decide that you wanted to create a story? And just to for a little, little question, does your writing and novels and stuff like that sort of make you feel that you already have an advantage in writing and creating a show because a novel's a really hard thing to write? Well, I'll tell you, and well, thank you for that compliment. I will tell you that I, I don't necessarily look at uh, it being difficult or easy. It's just a matter of do you want to do it? And I, I I found that when I wrote my first book, it was, I thought, finished at one point. Years later, I realized, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you thought that was finished. And then I went back and I revised it you know, very, very substantially. So it happens uh, at, at varying levels. I do believe that my proficiency in writing in other forms has been of service to what goes on for me with the show. And I have found that there is a difference in how they're expressed and how you work in the two ways. But if you want to create some connection between them, it would be in terms of story. You need the story. It has to be compelling on a level that you're invested, you're interested, and you're maintaining a passionate involvement with. Because if that's not true, it's probably not going to involve others in the same way. So I found that they do definitely serve each other. And in terms of where the character came from, he, Kenny the Gun, was a character that was born of my desire to amuse my castmates on the set of The Bone Collector. That's where this character came from. There was no story behind it consciously. It was just this over-the-top, 
guy who made people smile because he was such a big personality. And I called him Kenny the Gun. I don't know exactly where that came from, except for the fact that I was wearing a gun in that role. And a part of what I created for him was that he would lean into someone and say, Kenny, tap on his gun, and then say, the gun. And that would just make them laugh, and they would smile, etc. And Queen Latifah was the one who said that you should really do something with that. And that resonated with me, though I didn't uh, really have an interest or an, or an awareness of what to do with it or how to do something with it until uh, years later. And then I did. And I thought, this is a, this is a television show. I'm going to make a television show. And I'm going to create a story that's compelling. It's going to be funny, but it's also going to be dramatic. And we're going to show a character who's very engaging, very outrageous, but also going through something that's very serious and very sensitive. And that's what we've done. Now, you mentioned The Bone Collector. What was it like being a younger actor and, and knowing you're going to be in a movie with Denzel? Because bottom line is he's Denzel. He's great in everything. What, is, what does that do Like when you go on set? That must make you feel really special because you're playing... And you know, even with Ed, you guys are playing in the big leagues. But you know, from a, from the very beginning of your career, you've been lucky enough to play in the big leagues. What's it like when you go into a set with Denzel? Well, I was I was delighted, as you say. You know, it does make you feel very special, and I was so overjoyed because he played an especial part in my experience growing up. My mother was a wonderful source of inspiration for me without even knowing it because she had such good taste in films and she always wanted us to be watching good films as opposed to what she would probably consider trashy television and so she would buy films and we had this library of films that was really the results almost primarily of her taste in films and one of them was glory I do you remember this film? Have you seen Denzel Washington's yeah. performance in, in that movie? Yeah, that I saw that film. I, I I don't even know how many times growing up as a result of my mom having bought it for us. So when I first met him, I shared these things with him in a letter, and I gave him a a, a book, and inside the book was it was it was really a, a startup gift, and. Inside the book was a letter where I detailed for him how formatively he was a part of my experience growing up and watching what he did in, in Glory, which was such a magnificent performance. And then we went on to, to make the film, of course, and it was a, a wonderful success for everyone involved. It's still the highest grossing movie that I've been in, I believe. Now you're you're doing the movies, and then then you you know you jump over to TV. I know you were uh, had a few few episodes of That's Life. Once again, you're working with a great cast. I mean, do you ever sit there and just think, God, I'm really blessed because I'm reading, I'm working with really good people. Mm. I I that's something that is I would say it's fair to express with me on a regular basis. Uh, now, maybe more abundantly than ever, my gratitude to live the life that I'm living is enormous for uh, many, many reasons. Uh, not only because I work with people who are so wonderful 
and so talented, but because life outside of my career is such a fabulous event, it's filled with love and greatness and power, and that's not as a result of me working in entertainment. That's a, a result of a blessing that is really inexpressible that has to do with being alive and really being grateful for that and these other elements that can inspire that gratitude only underscore the greater reason for the gratitude and that's how much love I have in my life and how much joy and how much I have to look forward to in expressing that joy and love going forward. Now, you earlier had said you had gotten sober. Was there a defining point that when you decided I need to clean up, or was it just something that you said it's 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 holding me down? How did you make that point? Because you know sometimes there's certain people there's a, it smacks them right in the face, and sometimes people just go, mm-hmm. "I'm getting a little too uh, old for this crap." How did you? Mm-hmm. What what was your defining moment? Well, you're very insightful because the the options that you gave me in terms of the answer included the one that is the true one. I, I did not have a bottom, as they say. I didn't go through some aggressive or, or violent process of uh, self-annihilation that gave me this awareness that you have to stop. It was much less dramatic than that. It was the third time, by the way, that I got sober. I was sober for for the first time when I was 18, for about three and a half years. Right before I went to Sundance Film Festival, I started drinking again, which was a signpost at the time that I couldn't see that uh, this new step was creating more anxiety and issues for me than I wanted to realize, because I was trying to tamp them down, and I went back to a habit that was no good for me in ways as a result of knowing what was about to happen. And I got sober then again after that, some years later for about a year and a half, and then went back to drinking again. It's not uncommon that actually people who finally get sober successfully have more than one try beforehand. And for me, it definitely was, was true. And the third point was a charm. Connected to my answer about my gratitude for my life earlier, it's because I you're cutting out a little bit, Mike. Okay, I, I don't know why that is. You're back. Okay. What was the last thing you heard? No, you just said that you got sober with something in your heart. But it was just for a second. Yes. Okay, great. I Yes, it was that my heart was, was more open to life itself, uh, love and joy and God and sharing in all of the, the beauty of life with those around me. Whereas before, the sobriety was about something more egotistical. You're, you're better than this. You're, 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 uh, you're, you're someone who should be sober, etc. This kind of imposed idea of getting something done, as opposed to living a life that was abundantly defined by love and joy. And that's what the final uh, sobriety was invested in. And that's what it continues to be invested in. So it wasn't necessarily, as I say, some dramatic experience. It was what you described in, in many ways by saying, this is holding me down. That was not the exact thought, but it was that this is, this is holding me back. This is 
going to interfere with my reaching my potential. And because I want to reach my potential, I'm going to stop drinking and I am going to dedicate myself more substantially to the positive things in my life. And that's what I did. Now, you're, you've also had a, a successful career in voiceover work. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. And how does that, for, I mean, it's so funny. I always, like, there's so many people that, you know, they, they, people know you as the guy, oh, he was great, Brothers McMullen, but they don't know that you do the voiceovers. You don't know that you do music. And it's just like, it's so, such a blessing, in the, you know, that you have those different things going. But how did the, the voiceover work start? I mean, did someone just come up and say, you got a great voice, Michael, we, we got to use you? Or what happened? happened actually similarly to what you just described because I was waiting in an agency waiting room when the head of a voiceover department heard me speak and I was I was there to meet more intentionally about on-camera commercials very early on in my career and because this man had heard my voice and thought it was worth listening to more I got an audition to be considered voice field for them as well, and they turned out to be my my voice representation for many many years, decades to come. And so that's how it how it started, and then it was a a wonderful career for me in many ways for many years. When I moved out to Los Angeles in August 2015. I did make a shift, uh, not entirely away from that field, but I definitely prioritized my time. And where the voiceovers would come through, I was open to talking about it, but I have not been actively pursuing that since my move out to Los Angeles because I did not want uh, any interference with my great commitment to what I was creating at that time, which was Kenny the Gun, and what I continue to be committed uh, getting on your television screen. So as far as my activity in the voiceover field, it's much less than it was as a result of that choice. And though it's a, it's a benevolent choice, and it's something that's when the right project comes, if it's there and everything lines up, then I'm open to it. Though it's, it's not as abundantly a part of my life as it was. Now, you said you moved to L.A. in 2015. It's funny. I was out there for 15 or 16 years, and I just moved back a, a little over a year ago back to New Jersey with the mm-hmm. area I grew up in. What made you decide to leave in L.A.? Were you living in Long Island or were you living in Manhattan? or Where were you living before you moved to L.A.? In New York City for about 22 years, you know, with the exception to trips away, et cetera, and uh, at the early part of my career six to eight months in Los Angeles as a result of having fallen in love at that time and wanting to be out here with the woman that I was with then. So I had a long-term experience and very positive experience with New York for numerous reasons, though as time went on closer to my departure date, I was feeling more and more that Los Angeles would play a part in not necessarily my professional life as much as my personal life. I found myself remembering how I felt when I was out there in the latter years when I was still in New York and how I was operating on a level that was with greater tranquility in my heart and greater joy and a 
general sense. And so I decided finally that I was going to follow that message that I was receiving, and that's what I did. And I moved out here, as I say, in 2015, in August, so late in 2015. And New York will maintain uh, a, a wonderful place in my life, and I've returned many times. And Kenny, when we shoot it, will be in New York, so that is inevitably going to have me return there very substantially. But I'm very happy to live in Los Angeles. It's a it's a fantastic place to be. Now, you know, as your career is going, you're going, you know, you've been in a lot of stuff. And now the Fitzgerald's Family Christmas comes up, and that's an Ed movie. How did that come about? And and were you did you know you would be part of that? I Eddie wrote it, and he knew I would be a part of it. Then he brought it to me. It was really that simple. He wanted to make another movie involving both of us, and that was the one that he felt was right for that. So we started talking about it, and of course I was in uh, as soon as he mentioned it. And there it was, and we ended up making a movie that I enjoyed very much. Now, what's it like when you're getting back on screen with him? You know, you, you guys have this long lineage of, you know, you guys' careers, you both got big at the same time. So, mm-hmm. it's, and now you guys are grown men. You know, back then you were younger guys, you know, your young 20s, mm-hmm. whatever. What is it like when you go back as a mature actor and both as mature adults, what was it like stepping on step with him? Was it just like old times? And did you just have that same energy? You know, I, I, it's it, it's impossible to say that the that the experience was the same because it's a different time period, and at the same time, it it is in ways exactly the same. So there's that old adage that the more things change, the more they stay the same. That's definitely true of that experience, though. Where they weren't the same and they can't be the same is that. There was something extraordinarily magical about the brothers McMullen that blessedly cannot be replicated because it is this once-in-a-lifetime experience of being in a situation where you have no idea what lies before you. And granted, that's true no matter where you are in your life, though this one was an even more abundant example of that truth of life, where you're doing exactly what you want to do with your life, and you're doing it on such a pure level without any real developed expectation or uh, aggressive desire. I mean, I wanted to be famous, and I wanted people to pay attention to the movies I was in, etc., and all these very natural evolutions of being an entertainer and a performer. Though, when we were making that movie, I remember that my feelings about it were extraordinarily pure. I didn't know what could happen with it. I had no idea something like Sundance Film Festival existed even, I I don't believe. And we were totally under the radar making this really special film. And I knew it was special when we were shooting it. I didn't know what could happen with it or what would happen with it. But I knew when we were shooting it that there was something really magical going on. So that won't ever be replicated. Though when Eddie and I were in Brothers scenes in Fitzgerald Family Christmas, there's a feeling about it. <laughs> you know, it's like we we 
hadn't spent more than a half an hour apart. And here we are again doing this. It just feels so natural and right and easy. And I don't mean easy in the sense that, you know, it's uh, in, in the category of things being difficult to achieve or easy to achieve. I mean easy in the sense that it's filled with ease. It's, it's joy. It's happiness. It's natural. It's something you would do like breathing. And it was uh, fantastic for that reason. Now, you also run an episode of Psych, and my girlfriend loves Psych. She puts the reruns on, and I think it's a great show. I think they're just, they're, they have, that's great chemistry, those guys. What was it like shooting that? I've heard actors who've done there say, it's just a fun set. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. I had a ball doing that. One of the producers on the show at the time was someone I had worked with on uh, two other projects in the past, and he wanted me for that and had, had been writing with me in mind, if memory serves, for the role that I played. And the role that I played was this over-the-top, obnoxious uh, executive who it was such a delight to play. And also the atmosphere is very nice. It's in Vancouver. It wasn't Vancouver. It's no longer shooting. Though it was a delight to be on that set in a role that was in ways customized for me and the cast as you say is really a lot of fun and very talented and you're also you're recurring on person of interest another show that my girlfriend turned me on to and Caviezel's just always kicking everybody's butt I that stand show. by her taste 100% Steve <laughs> and I'm glad that she is exposing you to these wonderful shows what was it like on that set and is Caviezel like a, just a badass in real life or is he just like a quiet nice guy Because he's, he's a wonderful guy he's beating I, everybody up <laughs> he's, a, he's a terrific guy he's a very talented actor as anyone who sees him on screen knows and he's a gentleman. He's a he's a family man. He's a he's a fine-hearted man, and he's a sincere person. I, when I when I met him, it was around the time that the Geico car insurance rhetorical questions campaign that I was the spokesperson for was still, I think, relatively active. And he loved those commercials. So he was very complimentary about that. He was—he let me know openly that that brought him a lot of joy. And so from the beginning, we had a very positive experience. But even without the rhetorical questions campaign being something he enjoyed so much, I, I really, it's hard for me to imagine he and I not having a kinship because he's such a good man. Now the Geico commercial and a lot of, you know, it's very Rod Serling-esque and, you know, I think a lot of younger kids would watch it and they, would, they wouldn't get the Rod Serling connection, but everyone else who older does and it's just a cool character. Was that a long audition process or did they come to you and did you think it would run a lot? Because, you know, when you're in a big commercial, all of a sudden, like, everyone starts recognizing you. Mm. Well, it, with something like Geico, if you land the job, the chances that it's going to run are very high because if they make a commercial, they generally use it a lot. That's generally how that goes. With that campaign, I was called in and I felt in many ways that this was a gift given specifically to me because that character, while Rod Serling is a good match for it, there's also Robert Stack, there's Peter Gunn, there's 
Peter Graves. It's really not a Rod Serling character, and I didn't develop it from Rod Serling, but rather this this motif of personality that exists in the hard-boiled male characters of the 40s and 50s in the black and white era, the, the dragnets and the Mission Impossibles, etc. Well, not all black and white, of course, but that's where it existed. And this was a character that existed for me before I ever met on that job. There was this hard-boiled character. I would speak like this, and I would call my friends, and I would leave voice messages for them just like that. And then when Geico came, I realized, oh my goodness, I know exactly how to do this, because that character that I use in my personal life is perfect for this. And they agreed, of course, finally, and I got the job, and it turned out to be a big success role. Now, did people start recognizing you a lot? Yes, and they would recognize me from that, and then I would be able to let them know if they didn't know about the other things, uh, the films and the other television appearances, etc. So it was a great boon for me to have. Now, what I love about, you know, actors, character actors, you guys have been working forever, is you always run into the same people at auditions. Like, you know, Spencer Garrett and Larry Poindexter and David Starzik have all been in my show. And they're, they've been running to each other in the rooms for years. They still do. You know, and then Jim Beaver runs into some. Eric Palladino runs into his certain people. Who are the guys you run into? Did you run into uh, Kevin Dillon a lot? Or who would you run into? Like, in your early days and now? I don't know that I have the same experience, man. I, I, I didn't... I didn't have that. I, I had that more when voice overwork was more central to my pursuits. Though I didn't have a character actor's experience because uh, whereas some actors are more in specifically the character actor realm, for me sometimes I would go in on a lead, sometimes character supporting, sometimes a lead, sometimes character supporting. So it didn't have the same kind of consistency as some of those other actors. Now, since you've been acting back into L.A., are you getting out a lot? Are you getting a lot of auditions? Everything right now, almost everything, I will say, because it's not everything, but almost everything now is about getting Kenny on the air. So there are some things that I've been in discussion with that aren't necessarily coming from auditions, but they're coming from interest in me, uh, in a more direct way, and those things we'll see about developing, though the uh, inner, as I say, is very, very focused on getting Kenny where he needs to be and getting that on air. Now, do you have an idea of who you will cast in the other parts of Kenny, or have you already done that? Well, I have a list of people in the... I created the entire first season, so there are numerous characters that we will find once we're making the show that I don't have a vision for at the moment. Though there are those who I've already worked with on the series presentation, and they are the people who are at the top of the list for who I would have in this. Currently, most of them are, are those that I would have uh, in the series 
with me. There's a gentleman by the name of Robert Miller who plays the father, who's a pivotal character in the first season. The character of the father is a dramatic and and essential character to the story. And the mother is played by Anita Gillette, who you might recognize from She's the One, and also from Fitzgerald Family Christmas. She played my mother in that. She's been, I, yeah. And, and she plays my mother in Kenny as well. So, and then there are other other actors and actresses too. Lisa Romaine plays the, in ways, emotionally disabled love interest in the first season. She's fabulous. And so these are the people that are lined up at the moment. And uh, they're at the top of the list. Now, what's the, uh, what's, what's, what, tell me the log line for this show. Give me what you would use as your log line. Well, I, it, it is Dirty Harry meets The Sopranos. Essentially, you have a, a cop who is who has an aggressive nature and uh, an abundant personality, who has a toughness, and then you have a storyline in which family is very important, drama is important, and it's also at times very funny. So there's some all in the family as well, though the. The most brief that I could make it would be Dirty Harry Meets the Sprouts. Now, as you're doing this, you know, you put your other stuff on the on the shelf, let me say, your books, you know, the novels. How often do you write them? And and what has your feedback been about them? Well, I will tell you that, that my, that is a constant, whether it's, whether it's happening in a literal, physical sense, the writing on, on any given day, or whether it's only mental, the writing is always with me. So there's always a thought of what's going to come or getting back to work on a book that I'm at work on. Uh, a good example is today, there's a, a, a larger piece of fiction that I'm currently at work on that when you and I are through, I will probably be at work on before I go to practice yoga or take a run. I haven't decided what my physical fitness will be today, but I will be doing that in some measure today before I decide on that. Now, and yeah, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go. I know it's all right. I wasn't sure if I had answered the question or not. You were you were wondering where that was in my life. I think. Yeah, well, it's just because it's just it's so funny because you know you're working on this show, Kenny, where you're writing your act, and then you're 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 doing the uh, you're writing the novels, and you still have the music. I mean, most people can't even do one thing like that. It's like, does yoga help you balance this, or how do you keep a mental balance? with the creative juices because you know for me if I write something I get a it spurs to me in the middle of some time and I put it in my head or write an idea down but for you because you have so many different avenues of what you're writing how do you juggle them and still feel that you're giving your most to each one when you take a bite into it and you sit down and do it well when I'm when I'm doing it I if, if I'm going to be writing a song I or a, a, a record. Sometimes it doesn't even happen as a record, but it will happen as, you know, song to song. I don't know that I've ever sat down and, and written a record. What I, my trajectory has been to write songs and then put a group of them from that period of my life together and that's a record. And now it's even more disparate than that. I'll, I'll be choosing songs from years apart and putting them together for my, for my fifth record and for the sixth as well. In, in many ways, it'll be a, 
a polyglot, though I have found that the only thing necessary for me is that I'm all in with whatever is happening. So today, and I find it happens naturally for me, blessedly, that once I'm committed to something, once I say this is what's going to happen, there's no backing off. My nature is such that if I say that, then I won't be able to accept any other result except following it through. So that impels me to completion, whether it's the song, the compilation of the record, the book, the screenplay, the series, whatever it is. So when I am there, I discipline myself to commit to it, because once I do, I know that that is going to be the necessary aspect that, that brings me to its completion. And then there are, are different times of completion. You can think a book is done on one day, and then you go back to it three weeks later, and you realize, gosh, all right, I'm going to revise that. Or you give it to an agent, or you give it to a publisher, and then you're going to edit it from there forward. So many of these things are ongoing as well. Though completing them is something that once I commit to, I generally do. Well, you know, you seem to get a very positive attitude. You seem to really enjoy life. Is the yoga, does yoga help you in that? I mean, what, what is it? What yoga is fabulous, man. I, I would advocate it for anyone and everyone. I discovered it before the schedule that I had designed for my life with yoga. I thought yoga is for me in my 50s, man. This is not, this is not for me now. Though a dear friend of mine, Bethany Lyons, who is the co-owner and co-founder of Lions Den Power Yoga in New York City, which as a, are you are you in Los Angeles now or you're in New York? I'm in uh, right outside Philadelphia, New Jersey. Oh, okay. So that's not easy for you to be in New York. If you're in New York and you want to try something exceptional, if you're open to hot yoga, go to Lions Den Power Yoga in either Tribeca or Chelsea. They have two locations. In the Tribeca studio, which is the only one that existed in November 2014, I went for one class, Steve, because my dear friend opened a studio, and it was necessary for me as her friend to go and support, even though I didn't want to be practicing yoga at that time in my life. Well, so, so I thought. But I went into this class, and my thoughts changed dramatically. She is such a dynamic teacher. Yoga is such a dynamic practice. I respond to the hot element of it because there's an added challenge there that I enjoy. And I found that that one class that I was so set on making singular and not repeating turned out to be something that's central to my life now. And Bethany Lyons uh, is responsible for that result. Well, that's awesome, man. You know, I want to thank you for coming on this. I really enjoyed this. As I said, I've, I've, I'm, I'm close to 700 episodes, but I haven't recorded in about a, a month. So you were a good interview to have oh, me come great. back because you were just you were informative. You've had a great career. So and then people, Michael's website is michaelmaglone.com. You can find everything on there. Look him up on IMDb. Go watch his old work. If you haven't seen the Brothers McMullen or she's the one, go watch it. Just find him. He's very talented. Go buy his music. Go buy his uh, books. Uh, follow me, people. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Instagram is at Cooper Talk One. On Instagram, I put a lot of pictures of uh, food. Because remember, it was six years ago when I had that heart problem, 
and I wrote a cookbook. And you can get the cookbook at StopTheSalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes for one. You can make them bigger. You know what I mean? And you can get it at Amazon or you can get it at StopTheSalt.com. I make more money there. And you go to my website, coopertalk.net. So keep people keys. Please keep listening. Go check out Michael's work. Keep your eyes and ears and nose and everything else open for his show because I have a feeling it's going to be on, on one of the schedules next uh, next year, and we're hoping for that. So people, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next week.